Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is the Vice Guide to Right Now, a daily rundown of all things Vice. It's Friday, March 2nd. I'm Sophie Kazis. Today, we're addressing a gap in the dialogue surrounding the Me Too movement, the voices and experiences of incarcerated women. But first, the headlines. The NRA spent $30 million in 2016 supporting Trump's presidential campaign, the most the group has ever spent on a candidate. But now, Trump has scrambled the gun control debate by calling members of his own party petrified of the NRA and scolding Republicans for refusing to do something comprehensive about gun control. He proposed gun safety legislation opposed by the NRA and GOP for years, including expanding background checks for weapons sold at gun shows and on the internet. Walmart, the world's largest retailer, has also entered the gun debate. The company will raise the minimum age for purchasing weapons and ammunition at its stores from 18 to 21, and remove items from its website that resemble assault-style rifles, including toys and airsoft guns. And Russian President Vladimir Putin claims that Russia now has an invincible nuclear missile that can reach anywhere in the world. He boasted that the weapon couldn't be stopped by America's missile defense system and added that, if provoked, he would use it against the U.S. Putin said, quote, No one has listened to us. You listen to us now. And now, here's the news you won't get anywhere else. Since the dozens of sexual assault accusations against Harvey Weinstein first surfaced in October, industry after industry has been rocked by a moment of reckoning around sexual violence. The Me Too movement has opened up an important dialogue around sexual assault and harassment, but Vice writer Aviva Stahl argues that, for at least one group of women, the conversation still hasn't gone far enough. Incarcerated people are the population most at risk of rape, but their stories are often left out of this discussion. I sat down with Aviva to learn more. Last week, you published an op-ed on Vice.com, arguing that in this moment of cultural reckoning around sexual violence and harassment and the Me Too movement, that there's been a really important voice missing from this conversation. Can you explain this? Yeah, sure. I started noticing that the voices of incarcerated people were almost completely missing from the Me Too conversation. And I really struggled with that for two reasons. The first, of course, is that I write to a lot of survivors on the inside and a lot of survivors of prison sexual violence. And their stories matter. Uh, And I felt really disturbed that they weren't being told. 
But I think also the experiences of survivors on the inside tells us something really important about the nature of sexual violence in the U.S. And we won't really be able to end rape culture uh, until we fully understand it. Um, I think there are really important lessons to be learned just by examining how prison sexual violence happens and why we don't do anything to stop it. Yeah, so let's examine that a little bit. Uh, In your article, you cite a really striking statistic that 86% of women in prison are survivors of sexual violence and 77% are survivors of intimate partner violence. So why are the victims of such serious crimes filling our prisons? Um, Well, I think there's a few reasons. There's a few different kinds of pathways into prisons for survivors. The first is that people can be directly criminalized for defending themselves. A young woman like Brushin Meadows or a transgender man named Kai Peterson, who is currently in prison for defending himself and ultimately killing his rapist. Um, There are also people who are prosecuted kind of as an indirect result of being in an abusive relationship. So, for example, women who are in an abusive relationship and have drugs in their house because their partner pressures them to or engage in other kind of criminal behavior at the behest of their partner. I think also just people with traumatic backgrounds who don't have access to services because we don't have real services for survivors in this country struggle with trauma and struggle to survive in the outside world and aren't given the psychological or financial support they need to leave a relationship or heal from it. And to take this one step further, many of the women that you're describing who are survivors of sexualized violence and who find themselves incarcerated, then in prison experience more sexualized violence at the hands of prison staff, that this is a really common thing that we see. It seems like in this environment, it would be really hard to report acts of violence against you. So what happens when a woman or a person tries to report rape or assault or abuse that happened to them while being incarcerated? That's a really good question. Um, And I think, you know, regardless of whether you're in a women's prison or a men's prison, sexual violence is just endemic on the inside. And the barriers to reporting are really high. So I think the first thing to know is As a friend and a reporter I really respect, Vicky Law, told me the other day, if we think about on the outside why women don't report sexual harassment, for example, because they're afraid they'll face retaliation, because they're afraid they won't get promoted or they'll lose a job. On the inside of a prison, you know, the guards have control over every aspect of your life, what letters you receive, whether you can see your family, what cell you get put in, whether you get put in a cell with someone who might harm you or not, literally every aspect of your every existence. And so when I talked to Vicky Law about it, she talked about this as a wraparound effect, whereas in like our context and our lives, reporting might mean we won't get a job. Reporting in the prison context and facing retaliation might mean not being able to see your family, or it might mean being written up, given a false charge and being thrown in the box. And so the, the ramifications for facing retaliation are so high that a lot of women and men just choose not to report The other thing to note is that even when you do report, a lot of times the options you have and what will happen to you are pretty dire. A lot of people, when they report, they're put in protective confinement, protective custody, while the charge is being investigated. And that often amounts to solitary confinement. One trans woman who I've been in touch with, Daisy Meadows, told me 
in a letter a few years ago, I'd rather be raped every day than be put on the box. And for a lot of people, just knowing that they'll have to go to the box if they report their assault is an option that they're not willing to consider. I know that in 2003, a law was passed called the Prison Rape Elimination Act to address this issue of sexualized violence inside prisons. Did this have any effect at all on people's lives? It gives people like a language and a document to refer to when they're experiencing sexual violence or when they're, for example, trans in prison and trying to get appropriate care. So it gives standards that prisoners can hold up when they're not receiving the care they deserve. But in terms of holding states accountable for the violence that's happening in the facilities, really hasn't done much at all. Part of the reason that it hasn't is because there's almost no consequences for states that don't end up adhering to PREA standards or who are found to be not in compliance with PREA, I think you lose like a tiny fraction of a tiny pot of funding. In other words, it's legislation that's passed and that's on the books. But in terms of ending the epidemic of sexual violence in prison, no, it really hasn't done much at all. So what is being done to address this issue? I think there is a lot of really exciting work being done through kind of movement groups on this issue. Uh, Black and Pink is um, a really amazing group that links together queer and LGBT people across prison walls. And they published a survey a few years ago of a few thousand LGBT identifying prisoners on the inside and compiled data showing what their experiences of prison sexual violence are to try to give us a better sense of what is happening. And there are groups like Survived and Punished that are really working to tell the stories of criminalized survivors and make the connection between what happens on the outside and what happens on the inside. As you said at the beginning, the stories of people on the inside tell us a lot about our world writ large. So what can we learn more broadly from these stories? Uh, If we look at what's happened in USA Gymnastics or if we look at what's happened in the film industry, I think there have been a lot of efforts to have conversations about the relationship between people's individual acts of harm and institutional complicity. But I think we're really not pushing that conversation far enough. The main reason why the epidemic of sexual violence in prison exists is because of the way the institution structures the relationship between prisoners and guards. Guards have complete control over the bodies of prisoners, and prisoners don't even have bodily autonomy in the most basic way. You know, prisoners can face disciplinary charges for masturbating or for engaging in sexual conduct. So their bodies really aren't their own. So I think an important kind of corollary idea is, would it be possible to have prisons without having an epidemic of sexual violence? And I don't think there is, in part because of the way that the kind of incredible control that prisons allow one group of people to have over another people's bodies. I think that really tells us what kind of reform needs to happen in order for us to end rape culture and to really give survivors and women equal power in our society. I think the second really essential thing to learn from what happens in prisons is that the imposition of the gender binary and gender norms are really an essential part of how sexual violence sustains itself. Um, A friend of mine on the inside, a trans woman named Jerry, told me a couple of years ago that being in a men's prison really lets you know how many men really feel about women. And I think for her, being in prison enabled her to see the way that men use the bodies of trans people and women and gender non-conforming people in order to gain power. And that's what happens in prison, whether you're a guard or whether you're a prisoner. That's how people are certain established power in relation to each other. So to kind of wrap this all up, your op-ed essentially is asking 
the national conversation around sexual assault and harassment to center the voices and experiences of incarcerated women and trans people and gender nonconforming people. And your article ended with a pretty powerful quote by an activist that said, if you are anti-rape, then you also have to be anti-prison. So is your argument one of prison abolition? And can you explain what that concept really means? Prison abolition is both like a political program, but also, I think, a political philosophy, a way of seeing how to fix and improve the world we live in. So in its literal sense, prison abolition means to not see prisons as a solution to dealing with issues of violence or social harm or quote-unquote crime in our communities, that prisons aren't helping, they're actually hurting us even more, and that if we want to build a safer and more just world, we need to imagine and think up and enact new ways of managing the harm that people do to each other. Prisons show us that instead of creating the resources and support that survivors need to thrive on the outside, they're being trafficked into prisons and sent into prisons. And if we really want to have a survivor-centered world, then we need to work towards redirecting that money into creating like real resources, whether it's financial or psychological or in terms of physical health care. We need to, to redirect those resources into supporting survivors and enabling them to rebuild their lives. I think the other important idea to bring in when it comes to prison abolition and sexual violence is that prisons aren't keeping us safe. Most of us who are survivors haven't been harmed by people walking down the street. They've been harmed by people we know and we care about. And for a lot of people, they don't want the people they care about to be thrown behind bars. They want the violence to end. And in order to do that, in order to change how we relate to each other, we we need to rethink what the answer is. It's not to put people behind bars, to forget about them, to put them in places where it's violent and where they aren't getting the support they need to change their behavior. We need to bring those resources into the community so people can do the healing they need to do to stop causing harm. To read Aviva Stahl's full op-ed, go to broadly.vice.com. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. And make sure to tune in again Monday for another Vice Guide to Right Now.